This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Xiao Chao Ling, who's Associate Professor of Chinese at Arizona State University, and she'll be talking about her new book, Feeling the Past in 17th Century China, which was published last year, 2019, by Harvard University Asia Center. For anyone living through a historical cataclysm of some kind, it can be easy to forget that enduring the trauma of feeling like the world is ending or changing irrevocably has been a fact of life pretty often throughout human history. It seems likely that part of that forgetting is a result of the difficulty of fully empathising with the feelings others have felt, a leap made all the more difficult when comparing oneself to others who are temporally, culturally and linguistically removed. For this reason, among many others, Xiao Chao Ling's Feeling the Past in 17th Century China is an invaluable act of transporting us as readers into a new sensory world, namely that of the Chinese literati who experienced the transition from the Ming to the Qing, a dynastic change brought about by the Manchu conquest of the Han world and its inclusion within a wider empire of which it was just a single part. Exploring writing in numerous genres, from theatrical works to plays, uh, memoirs and erotic novels, Ling teases out a level of subjective feeling and embodied intimacy, which is really striking to see in the works of figures who, one might assume, took themselves somewhat seriously as men of letters. Furnished with rich extracts in the original classical Chinese, or Wen Yen Wen, this book is also a formidable work of literary translation – and in weaving together primary sources and analysis, it paints a vivid picture of men wrestling with commitments to community, family, and perhaps most poignantly to themselves as they negotiate the new order that has enveloped them. So whatever one's inclination towards comparison, it's hard not to see parallels here with other ages and other places which, for better or worse, have been rocked by political and social upheaval. But the author is here in our own age of upheaval of a kind to tell us more about all of this. And so I'll say, Xiao Chao Ling, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for appearing. Um, Before we dive into the book and its uh, sort of tumultuous uh, events and and, and the reflections on them by these literati figures, though, um, maybe I'll give you a a chance to say something a little bit about your, your background and how you became interested in the, the subjects in this book, and indeed any other subjects that you're interested in. Oh, sure. Um, I am. I'm from China. I finished my um, BA in uh, Renmin University 
and I came to the U.S. for my graduate studies. I first studied at University of Washington um, for an MA degree, and then I went to Harvard uh, to do a PhD. So both my MA and PhDs are uh, in the same field, East Asian Studies, which is a really small field in the U.S., by the way. Um, and um, yeah, I uh, developed this interest um, uh, of late imperial China just uh, basically because this is an unruly age. Um, and so uh, it's full of vitality and a lot of things going on. Uh, I did my uh, dissertation on one of the key figures in this book, uh, which is Ding Yao Kang. And so I kind of, uh, the book sort of uh, spun uh, around that central figure and I uh, dabbed in more into other figures from this period, other writings. And so, yeah, the book uh, is a result of that. So it was a ongoing uh, course of exploration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Ding Yao Kang definitely comes through as a very vivid figure throughout the book too, and we'll we'll get into him and uh, his uh, pretty intriguing biography in a bit, I think. Um, but I just wonder as well, uh, from a linguistic point of view, I guess for people uh, like myself and others who study modern and contemporary China, um, obviously something that uh, jumps out uh, in a book set in this period is is the use of classical Chinese, um, and it's actually something I've never been fully sure of myself, but how much exposure to classical Chinese did your education in China give you um, to, you know, in terms, of, or was it something you had to learn extensively as a, as a student later? Yeah, the, that's a really good question because um, uh, of course, um, secondary education in China is also changing right now. But when I entered um, college, um, yeah, and in fact, finished college because my, I majored in English uh, in college. I didn't receive any education in classical Chinese other than having to rogue uh, memorize some of the key essays. Um, so yeah, there, there was no explanation of the syntax of how the grammar uh, worked differently. We were just um, asked to memorize certain key essays um, to pass the exam. <laughs> so uh, I would say all my education in classical Chinese, especially across the, the linguistic barrier, because the working language is English, so we need to mm-hmm. also translate uh, the classical Chinese into English. And so that would force us to look at the language. So it's almost uh, like a different language compared to modern Mandarin because the, the syntax, the grammar, everything is just really different. Um, so yeah, part of my graduate training is really to, um, to learn how to uh, translate and also how to read this classical Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's interesting to hear. Um, is your impression then, you say that things are changing now, is your impression that more education in the classical languages now being included in education uh, in mainland China? I think that definitely there's more, um, there's more emphasis now 
uh, it's considered uh, like the lit- uh, cultural legacy, right? The literary mm-hmm. past. Um, and so mm-hmm. there are all sorts of um, uh, like competitions, um, mass media uh, to promote uh, the uh, classical Chinese um, and also the really enormous literary corpus from cl- uh, traditional China. And so that was something that wasn't there. Uh, so mm. it wasn't something that was like a hot topic when I was right. growing up. <laughs> but I now, see. yeah, like cultural literacy, uh, legacy um, is a big uh, topic. And that uh, the notion that you need to be committed to this literary legacy as a citizen, that's um, also something that's recently emphasized. Um, oh, I mean, recently uh, over the past decade, something mm. like so, so yeah, I don't, I, I'm not familiar with the actual curriculum right now, but um, I, I think there should be like more in terms of content wise, probably a little bit more emphasis, but I don't know if, because um, this is another thing as a native speaker, um, you weren't really taught like how to dissect um, a different language because you assume it's still your language. Mm. And so therefore, I don't know if the teaching method itself will change dramatically. Um, but I definitely think the content-wise, there should definitely be more uh, about right. classical Chinese in curriculum. I see, I see. I mean, uh, I think it's probably quite unfair of me to even ask you that, especially so near the beginning of our conversation, because that's not really the topic of the book. And uh, also, oh. all I'm doing is uh, exposing my own ignorance of uh, of such matters. So I think we should uh, we should move on to to actually talking about the yeah the the, the kind of content and and oh, the sure. incredible amount of rich work that does has gone into this book. Um, so now we know kind of yeah something about uh, its origins. Um, perhaps we'll jump into the introduction, in which you kind of lay out the, the structure and the kind of different. Uh, themes that you talk about uh, before continuing on to, to five chapters and an epilogue. Um, so you've given us a little clue there as to your attraction to this very lively and yeah, kind of um, uh, incident-filled late imperial period and why you're interested in it. So could you give us a bit more sense of what that period was, uh, specifically, I guess, the 17th century uh, on which this book focuses, what what was going on? Oh, 17th century. Well, in China, what was going on was really the Manchu conquest of China, uh, which was, of course, not the first time when a non-Han Chinese uh, regime conquered China, but it was the first time when the conqueror um, deliberately implemented um, policies on forcing the Han Chinese subjects to adopt the Manchu way of dressing uh, and of having their hair. Well, the male... Uh, subjects having to shave their hair. So, so the, the Manchu conquest of China has this kind of really uh, embodied aspect of it. Um, and so that's very particular in 17th century China. But also mm. globally, 17th century, this is just such a connected age. It was the age of silver, uh, the early modern time. Um, and um, so so there, there was a lot of parallel across uh, the globe uh, at that time in the sense of the rise uh, of this mercantile class um, and this rise of individualism, uh, this uh, um, urge to redefine the sense of self, 
um, and a lot of like intellectual vigor going on. So 17th century across the board was an exciting time. Mm. Well, and that excitement uh, in the in the Chinese context does emerge in great detail from from the book. Um, but what were then some of the kind of responses to this uh, upheaval and and the, the turmoil of the Manchu conquest that uh, that literati figures uh, came up with? I mean, what what was the reaction, as you say, to being uh, under a new uh, regime and, and 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 in many cases being forced to adopt yet yeah, quite bodily modes of um, uh, subordination maybe to that regime. Right. Uh, since we're talking about the literati, uh, and like you said, they take themselves very seriously because men of letters, uh, literati, uh, it's not just um, a a tag um, that point at their own sense of intellect, but um, in uh, 17, in traditional China overall, um, being a literatus or being a man of letters really means like you carry on this moral mission um, as this um, person who have to safeguard this um, this civilization, this entire heritage. Um, and so there's a lot of moral responsibility in that. And so when we talk about the literati's response to the Manchu conquest, of course, there are uh, different modes of responses in terms of um, actual uh, political choices. You can uh, easily divide people into two groups, those who uh, collaborated with the Manchus or who complied with the Manchu regime and those who re- refused to do so. And so that is traditionally a very valid and sound like political um, label uh, to show like who is loyalist, uh, who is not, um, who is um, uh, fine with switching allegiance um, to cooperate with a new regime. But that is the political choice uh, or the existential choice, but there are also like literary choices. And so that's where things become a lot not like black and white. Um, and so that's also where uh, different literary choices, and um, by that, uh, we also mean the choices of different genres uh, and different uh, ways of writing, uh, Of because uh, writing was really this way of uh, communicating with the world and al- also to monitor your sense of self. And so in terms of the literary choices, um, there were just um, a lot um it's really rich. Um, and also writing was a way of forging a sense of community. And so writing was also a way of um, reaching out to readers. And so therefore, the literary choices was also a socially and morally significant choice because you define your sense of self in the community. Uh, and mm-hmm. by defining that community, you identify yourself as part of the social body. Mm, mm, right, and and uh, you do trace some of the connections and some of the, I guess, intertextual dimensions to different authors that you uh, uh, discuss in the in the book and how they were reading each other, and, and yes, I guess actually, you know, performing this community, as you say, um, the writers that you focus on primarily, including Ding Yaokang and others, come generally from the Jiangnan uh, area. Uh, now, that's the kind of, I guess, broadly south of the. Yangtze area, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, um, the lower Yangtze Delta, um, mostly. right? Yeah. So, um, so what's the significance of that area uh, 
in the history of the Manchu conquest and uh, how how did the fact that they came from this particular place shape their experience of that event? Uh, yeah, it's a really significant place. It was basically this uh, hub of cultural center uh, because the Manchu conquest itself as an experience, it has um, widely regionally different uh, perspectives. And so the north, in the north, uh, the Manchu uh, conquerors actually met a lot less resistance compared to the south. Uh, so because the south was kind of nested, uh, it's south of the Yangtze River, which is incredibly hard to cross, right? If we think about um, 17th century, right? Mm. Um, and so therefore, the south was always um, like well-nested um, and also well-connected. And it was also a really rich area. When we talk about the civil service examination nationwide, um, the south um, or the Jiangnan area was also the place where competition was the fiercest which meant uh, there were a lot more talented um, men of letters from this area. And so that's why there is this really distinctive regional sense of identity um, as the talented person who represents the heart of Chinese civilization. This is why when the Manchus crossed the river, they ran into some of the bloodiest uh, clashes in the south. And so to a certain degree, that decision to implement the hair shaving policy was really targeted at the southern elite um, as a really direct way to humiliate them. Um, And so therefore, um, so the south, the Jiangnan area, um, it really underwent like this um, really dramatic clash. And so therefore, that sense of loss, that sense of humiliation um, is really uh, poignant. Uh, among the uh, literati figures, and also uh, the literati network uh, or the communities. We saw some of the um, most pronounced communities from the Jiangnan area. So we kind of saw like little uh, social hubs and cultural hubs typically centering around like a garden or a really um, beautiful, like a local resident um, uh, like a literary salon, some something like that, and so that that's why the Jiangnan area was really important as a figure of remembrance. Mm, mm. Oh, that's really interesting, and and you also mentioned, I guess, some consequences of the fact that there was a, a lot of emphasis placed on subjugating this area by the conquerors. In that, uh, I think one of the kind of bloodiest, most violent. Um, I guess acts of conquest was in Yangzhou uh, and some of these other areas actually maybe put up the stiffest resistance to uh, the uh, these outsiders coming in Um, so that's yeah that's uh, really interesting to hear and I guess also interesting from the point of view of locating where people perceive the center of of Chinese civilization, if you know, that's <laughs> too vague a term, to be right, because actually that's pretty yeah. far east uh, from the you know uh, in the kind of grand canvas of where China uh, you know quote unquote originates from. Um, but uh, okay. yeah, as you say, there's a very concentrated sense of cultural uh, kind of intensity there. Um, yeah, this also had to do with the printing boom, the book culture at that time. So 17th mm. century, it was also this time of commercial publishing. And so a lot more writers saw their own writings published during their lifetime. And so there were, of course, several centers of major book productions, but the most beautiful, the most uh, elaborate uh, deluxe editions, they were from the South. 
Um, mm. And so basically, if you think about like really exquisite editions of books, you think about a few cities specifically, they were all in the, in the Jiangnan area. And so oh, it was a real like center of cultural production. Right, right. And, and yeah, I guess, again, that, that, that adds to that sense of concentrated uh, interle- interlocked and uh, a kind of, a kind of um, yeah, more intense yeah, cultural space. Right. right. And uh, that kind of leads us on, I guess, to this question of the body, which uh, I guess throughout the book does have multiple meanings um, because you're talking about the kind of subjective experience of these individual literati figures, but also, uh, as you've already mentioned, the the social body and uh, and a kind of extended sense of, of community there. Um, so could you say a bit more about your sort of understanding of, of the body, both as a, uh, a kind of affective, uh, I don't know, receptor for, for new experience, but also as a, uh, as a community? Could you sort of elaborate a bit on how you understand this idea of the body? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so I approached the body um, to go beyond the dichotomy of the body and mind, because uh, the body within the Confucian sense is really uh, not only the seat of emotions and perceptions, but also the seat of moral being. And so the body is really uh, this uh, moral, the embodiment of a moral person. Um, and so, uh, so therefore, I use the body as a way, uh, as a medium to process the experience of the conquest. And so I do treat the body individually from the perspective of uh, emotions and sensory perceptions. Um, and so that is more on the individual uh, level, um, the body as effective receptors for experience. But I also treat the body as a trope, uh, as a literary uh, figure. Um, and so that is where the body becomes something larger, becomes an active um, factor in the um, in the uh, building of the social body. And so that's why I chose uh, the genres that are like really embodied uh, genres in the sense that the, the, the genre itself foreground the notion of the body. For example, an erotic novel, right? And so uh, it centers around this uh, lustful uh, body, right? The body as a, a seat of sin um, that needs redemption. Um, and whereas the deliverance play, it also foregrounds the body um, as like it's, it's a kind of religious experience. Um, so the entire play drives towards this eventual deliverance to deliver this uh, sensory body um, from its um, entanglement, emotional and sensory entanglement, and also from this mundane world in general. And so when we talk about the body as a, a trope, then we're talking about the body as this um, um, language, um, as this token that you can talk about that uh, brings in all of these uh, implications on ways to um, deal with your past, the ways to redefine your sense of self. And so to that end, um, the body becomes something larger than the individual sense of body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And often those, uh, I guess, experiences mapped onto both uh, subjective uh, persons' bodies and wider social bodies are uh, related to or, or held up against memories and senses of longer term continuity. Um, so could you say how 
these kind of immediate affective responses to what's going on relate to questions of remembrance and uh, I guess a perspective on what has has gone past I mean the past is in it's in the title of the of the book uh right um well it's um it has to do with the sense of embrace or rejection right um or this will of um wanting to forget and the impossibility of forgetting and so yeah um using the notion of the body um we really get a sense of uh, engaging uh, with the past by making choices um, and, and very convoluted choices of um, rejecting it, embracing it. And of course, it's never like clear cut, black and white. And so all these are different modes of engagement. So you could denounce your past, but you still um, um, keep a part of it. Um, as part of the stigma of yourself. And so instead of uh, completely purging it, you keep a part of it and using that as a ground on which to rebuild yourself. And so the body is really becomes like this platform where you can negotiate different terms of dealing with your sense of the past. And of course, the notion of the past also keeps changing uh, depending on how you uh, want to engage with the past. That's where the emotions themselves, when you record them down, uh, they become this very powerful tool of self-monitoring as well. So this is why um, I, I included like these memoirs uh, and diaries um, um, because they show to us like how the way the past is engaged emotionally is also a way of the current subject to um, decipher the past or to choose a way of engaging with the past effectively. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, it's, a, it's a, a particularly strong, I guess, juxtaposition uh, of, of genre that comes through when you're laying these these memoirs and and uh, and diaries alongside uh some of the more i guess um uh well fictionalizing embodied works like uh, theatrical and 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 uh, erotic uh, novels and so on yeah, yeah. um but just finally uh, before we do jump into the, the kind of content chapters themselves um i just wondered actually about returning again uh, briefly to language uh, because feelings and uh, i guess uh, a sort of sensory subjectivity are somewhat kind of context specific and vary, you know, between uh, languages and cultures as they exist at the same time. I mean, I guess personally, something I found about learning other languages is finding a way of expressing feelings that seem rooted in a certain kind of context, you know, in another language. I, I, I don't know if that's that's only me, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's a more general experience that it doesn't always seem like there are direct translations for for feeling type terms. So I just wonder when you were translating, obviously uh, from a different language, as, as you've already kind of uh, explained in terms of your experience with classical Chinese, but also from so long ago, what were there difficulties that you faced in, in knowing how to translate 
these literati figures' expressions of their feelings or of the feelings of others into uh, English in particular? Oh, um, yeah, that's actually um, part and parcel of uh, our graduate training here, which is um, when when you translate, it's all classical Chinese, but classical Chinese itself also ran a spectrum of different registers. And so when you translate um, like uh, uh, emotional self-representations, the very fact that where those emotion uh, emotives are located also should uh, shape the way uh, you decide to translate because uh, poetry, uh, essays or prose essays, um, as opposed to plays and fictions, they all uh, treat uh, emotions um, differently. And so that's why um, choosing different genres to write is almost like a kind of social contract. So the writer, they by choosing a specific uh, genre, they are already kind of defining the community of readers or the way uh, he wants to be read. Um, mm-hmm. And so to that uh, extent, um, the choice of the genre itself is already like this um, cognitive um, definition of how you want to approach the emotions. And so therefore, the challenge of translating is really like to pit it um, and to uh, grapple it within the context of that particular genre. And so if you're dealing with a really beautiful, like high registered uh, poem, then uh, you really cannot use the kind of earthy language that um, vernacular fiction usually would be using. And so I think, yeah, tapping into uh, the different registers of language um, in English to kind of bring out uh, the nuance in the way emotions are encapsulated in different kinds of literary experiences, that was part of the challenge. I can imagine, yeah. And uh, I think it, it sort of <laughs> creates an even greater sense of awe at the uh, yeah diverse range of uh, translations and quite extensive extracts you have in the book from uh, lots of different sources, um, into which we will now, I think, uh, dive a little closer. Um, so in chapter one, uh, you deal with uh, a genre known as the deliverance play. And uh, I guess specifically, you're talking about Ding Yao Kang here, um, among others. Um, so could you say something about, uh, A, I guess, what a deliverance play is uh, as a particular form, but then a bit more on Ding Yao Kang and his life and career, uh, both sort of literary biography and also just more general. Uh, what, what, what did he what did he get up to and uh, experience during his lifetime? Oh yeah, right. Um, yeah, a deliverance play is a very particular subgenre of uh, traditional Chinese plays. Historically, it was associated with this particular. Um, form of theater that thrived during the Mongol Empire. But when uh, it reached the time to Ding Yao Kang's time, which is 17th century, as opposed to the Mongol Empire in the 14th and 15th century, um, this form um, of which the deliverance uh, play was a subgenre was already uh, really purely there for reading. And so it is part of uh, the part of reading experience, of course, has to do with envisioning the staging of it. But it's still part of the the performance is still part of the reading experience. And so that's why the deliverance play in 17th century as this subgenre 
of uh, um, uh, a theatrical form that was very much part of a reading experience became like really this accommodating genre for you to um, to play with the convention, to push the boundary of the convention. And so therefore, it became a really um, good vessel for um, the author to, to experiment uh, with something. And so here, um, this particular deliverance play became uh, a way, well, a deliverance play itself, it's about deliverance, right? And so, but deliverance in a religious sense, usually in a Taoist uh, religious sense, uh, which is really about um, casting aside all your bodily attachment to this world, including your desire, uh, your wish to become famous, your, uh, your wish to become successful. Um, so all those worldly attachments, the deliverance play uh, is engaged with um, cutting off all these ties, worldly ties towards the end, often with the help of a religious figure who would uh, conjure up all kinds of ruses um, to have the protagonist pass as a kind of uh, trial a lot of times they don't even pass it, but eventually the deliverance play always delivers them. And so, so, so that kind of um, uh, the, the format of this becomes a way for Ding Kang to put his own personal experience into this. So it's a religious play, but then uh, he replaces these uh, religious ruses by uh, really contemplating on ways of engaging with the past, like whether you want to forget it uh, or whether you um, f- trying to forget actually is futile. And so it becomes um, this way for him to experiment with how he wants to process the Manchu conquest as it was um, going still um, ongoing at the time. So it's very much part of like figuring out how to engage with the world. And so he used the deliverance play um, as a literary form to um, to explore his own personal concerns. About Ding Kang himself, he's a very uh, prolific uh, writer. He never really passed the civil service examination, and so he never became an important scholar official. Um, and so to that end, he was uh, sort of like a a more like common kind of uh, or a typical kind of uh, literary man in the sense that he wasn't one of those important uh, cultural figures, but he was very much part of that social network or the cultural network uh, among which a lot of the very uh, prominent literary figures were uh, part of. And, and he also traveled a lot. He is actually himself from the North, but like, um, like this book shows, he became really uh, involved in these literary networks in the Jiangnan area. And, and so that very fact that he's a Northerner who traveled to the South and who engaged actively in these uh, literary circles in the South um, and also in the North uh, gives him a kind of the sense, sense of national import. So he is a person of the North and uh, of the sentiments of the South. Um, and so um, what makes this deliverance play really, um, um, really uh, relevant is also the fact that how he engages a community of his immediate friends as imagined uh, readers or audience of this play. And so therefore, he is really like staging this act of uh, reading as this communal 
experience. And so therefore, as a writer, um, he just becomes this um, really important epitome of uh, the sentiments of that time, but also someone who actively engages himself in this community building kind of endeavor. Right, right. Um, and the play, I, I think uh, you discuss, is uh, called Songs and Tunes on Transformative Ramblings. Um, oh, yeah. Wonderfully evocative uh, tra- uh, translated title. But uh, uh, there's all kinds of different ramblings uh, that uh, go on throughout the book. Um, I think it's oh, yeah, a, right. itself a very a very interesting and evocative idea. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that, that's a great kind of, uh, I guess, yeah, potted history of, of things. Pretty interesting, I guess, uh, straddling of... of Two worlds, north and south. Um, but as we'll perhaps also uh, discuss shortly, he also kind of has, I guess, another uh, dual capacity in that he spends some time uh, in retreat from the conquest, but also ultimately ends up working in uh, the Qing capital, um, right? Somewhat, right. Somewhat in a collaborationist right. fashion. Eventually resigned as well, <laughs> and so so he's like going back and forth himself, uh, and we kind of see how uh, his change uh, attitude towards the regime got filtered through his literary output as well. Mm, right. And uh, yeah, and I think some of the latter discussions you have of his, uh, some of his other uh, literary works um, definitely bring that out. Um, but before that, uh, in chapter two, uh, you've already highlighted a bit here the kind of uh, some of the significant uh, dimensions to g- generic distinctions between things like plays uh, even ones that are meant only to be read, um, and then also uh, memoirs and diaries and so on. Um, and so chapter two brings out the work of uh, three writers in particular, although also, again, referencing some others, but um, uh, Wang Xiaochu, Zhang Maozi, and uh, Ye Xiaoyan uh, are the kind of, I guess, protagonists of this chapter. So could you say something about how their memoirs and, and these works were helpful in helping us see beyond uh, trauma as a kind of prima facie, I guess, response to the conquest. Yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, the fact that Wang Xiuchu and Zhang Maozi, their writing did not actually surface till late 19th century, early 20th century, extremely late, which meant that during throughout the Qing dynasty, um, their testimonies of uh, the Manchu conquest remained hidden. But uh, with the rise of uh, modernity, 20th century, there was like a surging uh, anti-Manchu sentiment again, um, because the Qing China was really uh, collapsing um, um, and caving in to all the kinds of like, Western uh, imperialist forces. And so there was that time when intellectuals, they became um, again, restless, uh, and they attributed uh, all these failure to the ineptitude of the government and the very fact that the ruler was non-Han Chinese made them an easy target. And so this broadly anti-Mentu sentiment um, accompanied the surfacing of these writings. And so therefore, typically, Wang Xiuchu and Zhang Maozi's writing, they were seen as like these historical sources as testimonies mm. against uh, the uh, of um, Manchu atrocity, uh, and so I grouped them together with Ye Shaoyuan to try to uh, show how writing itself, even when it looks like it's non-mediated, like uh, as if it is just realistic testimonies um, of what happened. In fact, it was part of the literary choice, and so I kind of 
group them together to show how the kind of unflinching account of uh, carnage um, is just as deliberate a literary choice as the kind of lyrical mode uh, of dealing with the everyday uh, in Ye Shaoyuan's case. Uh, so basically suffering, uh, the uh, the bloodiest um, uh, massacre uh, and trying to uh, save yourself um, and describing all the turmoil, all the pain that you go through, when you put that down in paper, when you encapsulate that into a kind of moral tale, um, that very uh, act itself is just as conscious as um, engaging, uh, writing a diary, uh, recording the everyday uh, experience, writing down the gatherings, uh, the eatings and drinkings, uh, and situating yourself in that kind of mundane activity. So I kind of try to show uh, these two modes of um, engaging with uh, the contemporary world was both part of uh, the literary choices of writers from this time. Right. And these were figures primarily who kind of withdrew somewhat, right? I mean, I, lots of the right. characters you talk about are people who were sort of, uh, whose response to the advancing Manchu conquest and then the subsequent years and even decades in some cases was to sort of run off into the woods and, uh, or, or uh, right, renounce right, yeah. and uh, become monks or, or kind of responses that were to do with, I guess, basically not accepting uh, the new way of things. Um, right. But uh, I mean, it's also really fascinating to hear about the life of these texts in the subsequent, uh, well, centuries and up to the end of the, the very end of the Qing era. Um, who were these diaries kind of written for? I mean, who were what, what were uh, Wang Xiaochu and, and Zhang Baozi and so on's work? Just sort of personal uh, things, or, or were they uh, intended for an audience of some kind? Yeah, I I guess both. Um, So they were um, like private acts of writing, but then the way they write it um, and the way they engage uh, their potential readers and also the way they process themselves, they definitely show anticipated um, uh, a particular group of community. And that is exactly the kind of community um, that is uh, the, the social body that I tackle with in this book. And so it is a, a, a personal decision to record um, these experience, but they appeal, they make an appeal um, to a much broader, uh, like men of my own kindred spirits. Um, and so by making that gesture, they are already reaching out to uh, forge this sense of community. And so it's both. It's a private act, but it is both also a public act of reaching out and forging this sense of community. And so uh, I believe these um, individual writings, they were kept like within the family. Um, and so they were kept um, and, and transmitted uh, through hand copying. And some of them, uh, some versions even circulated as far as Japan. Um, and so, yeah, it, it definitely had an interesting afterlife um, during throughout the Manchu period. It's just never um, cogently up in the front um, in the face of the Manchu conquerors. Right, sure. Well, in that sense, this book itself brings them into uh, yet another context and and uh, kind of puts them in a, uh, I guess, a setting which uh, maybe is closer to what they what they belonged in uh, than lots of the other ways that 
they would have been read in ensuing decades. Um, now, chapters three and four together kind of bring us back to Ding Yao Kang and I guess delve into uh, a kind of fuller appraisal of, of, of some of his work uh, kind of um, in other genres. Um, you've already highlighted or, or, well, alluded to the, the sort of fact that he he went back and forth and kind of was, uh, you know, on the margins of both, I guess, the world of uh, full-on uh, con- collaboration or reconciliation with uh, the new government and then also, um, I guess, flirting with rebellion too. Um, so could you say something a bit more about his broader of and how it sort of helps us understand these choices between uh, acceptance and rejection of uh, the new uh, way of things under the Qing. Yeah, you. Uh, this is why Ding Yaokang is such an interesting figure because if you look at his literary corpus, um, he very meticulously, uh, meticulously uh, cr- um, put his own writings in chronological orders. And so poetry he wrote throughout his lifetime. And so he had uh, several um, uh, collections of his poetry meticulously chron- uh, chronicled. Um, but um, in terms of other genres, it's very uh, interesting like which particular genre he chose to engage at different phase of his life. And so the Deliverance play, he only wrote one of that within. It's, it's a particular theatrical form, like I said. He only wrote one of that. Um, and, and that was also when he was still very much part of um, the Manchu conquest. He was still running for his own life uh, and not knowing what's going on. And so he's very much like caught in the middle of things. And so he chose the deliverance place um, to, uh, um, to delve with all these uh, uncertainties and openness. But later on, uh, when he, um, so for a decade, he was actually serving under the Manchu court um, as a instructor. So um, very, not even part of the administration, but a, a very like, marginal, uh, low position. But um, as instructor, then he can also have this sense of moral mission. It's like I, um, I am educating uh, the Manchu uh, students. So he was actually like teaching Manchu students about Chinese classics. And so there mm-hmm. is this sense of moral sense of uh, I'm broadening, I'm spreading the influence of Chinese civilization. And so in that uh, role as an instructor, he produced um, the bulk of his uh, plays. And these are Southern plays. So they are different from the Deliverance play, which was uh, part of the Northern play. And so the Southern plays, they are, uh, again, very formulated. They're almost always like romantic plays, uh, very long, um, but often having a historical background against which the romance uh, takes form uh, and goes through these trials and tribulations until a final grand reunion. So he, again, he uh, makes use of this trope uh, or this um, literary form uh, as a way to um, to express his own attitude towards uh, the mental conqueror. So in one of his plays from this period called The Travels of the Red Pine, um, he actually drew upon this historical uh, parallel to compare the Manchus as saviors of China because the Ming actually fell not to, um, technically the Ming didn't fall because of the Manchus. It fell because of peasant rebels. 
And so there was that really narrow window time when the Manchus were not seen as conquerors of China, but they were avengers of China because they were driving down, they were defeating the peasant rebels. Mm -hmm. And so um, he made the topic of one of his plays, this historical play, but of course, using history as a veiled uh, parallel of his contemporary time. And so, yeah, um, by engaging this, um, he is really um, kind of con- conveying this idea, like how ready he is uh, to embrace this regime by comparing them to Avengers of China. But interestingly, after he resigned from his teaching post, that's the point uh, where he wrote this erotic novel. And so in that novel, um, he really, um, again, set it in a historical past, but then that historical past sheds a very unflattering light on the Manchus. And so within his own literary corpus, you kind of saw the change of his attitude um, um, and the, the development of his sense of self and how he wants to engage with the contemporary world. So we kind of see in his own uh, literary corpus the richness of these different uh, vacillating points um, Mm. in his ways of situating the self. And so that's what makes him really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess in that in that latter erotic novel that you mentioned, um, it's an analogy or a, I guess an allegory with the uh, Jin Song uh, transition, uh, right. another kind of period when I guess uh, people came down from the north and uh, right. uh, took, took took over the, the, the central plains or whatever um, that that he's that he's drawing on there for this um, I guess quite pointed uh, sort of argument he wants to make about the Manchus. Um, as regards kind of more oppositional writing like that, uh, I mean, you discuss the idea that uh, there were literati um, feeling as though, you know, there were kind of leftover figures from the Ming who were engaging in a kind of activism, um, those that were more resolutely opposed to the Qing. Um, what kind of form did this activism take? I mean, do, do you understand that activism just to be writing in a particular way or were there were there sort of any i don't know if this is even known but were there sort of any organizational efforts that were made by groups oh, of yeah, scholars there were. Yeah. there were there were a lot of actual um resistance forces and because a lot of these uh, literary figures they were also local elite um and so they actually um some of them formed their own armies uh, and so they would like recruit uh, also, um, uh, like peasants uh, in the regions um, uh, or soldiers, um, or they even have like their own um, household uh, army, that sort of thing. So there were real actual um, resistance, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of them actually led by these literary figures. Um, so this is why uh, from this period, um, when you look at a, a, a literary person, they really take on like different kinds of lives. Um, for example, one of the uh, loyalist figures, uh, Qi Biaojia, uh, who was part of the literary circle that uh, Ding Yaokang um, 
uh, was part of. Um, he was a martyr. Uh, he killed himself um, as an official. But on the literary landscape, um, he is best known to be the owner of this beautiful garden and this um, writing of remembrance, this nostalgic writing, um, and and so uh, and also this uh, literary connoisseur uh, of beautiful things of uh, high culture. And so you really, when you look at the literary life and the political life of these figures, or even like military uh, life of these figures, they are incredibly rich. Mm. Mm, absolutely, and and yeah, I think uh, your your balancing of those two uh, kind of perspectives, both biographical and, and literary, is uh, is is such a valuable aspect of the book as a whole. Um, finally, kind of moving on into the last ch- chapter, you're dealing with people who I guess uh, came up as scholars or writers at a slightly later stage. I mean, once uh, Qing power, I guess, was fairly uh, established, and so these are not people necessarily who actually experienced firsthand the the transition. Um, so for writers like Kong Shangren and, and, and others that you discuss here, the post-generation, as you put it, um, how did the kind of sort of temporal situatedness of them and, and the fact that they were kind of from a slightly different era affect their attitudes towards the past and their writings about that kind of earlier era? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I use this notion of post-memory Um, exactly because we're talking about the same literary community. Um, And so when um, we actually see in the historical play of Kong Shangren, the staging of both uh, generations, so the conquest generation who are the the generation of uh, of Kong Shangren's father, that generation, um, and then the post-generation, that is Kong Shangren's own generation. So you kind of see how the tightness of that literary community, but then in terms of the historical situatedness, um, Kong Shangren could no longer write as if he was in an age of turmoil. He actually had to write uh, about his present as this age of sagely ruler that was the um, the Manchu ruler. And in fact, in the case of Kong Shangren himself, it's interesting because Kong Shangren himself, he was one of the direct descendants of Confucius himself. And so he's like, I, I don't remember exactly, but like something like the 63rd generation or something. Um, that So, so a, a direct line that traces all the way back to Confucius. And so this is why the... Um, the emperor, the Qing emperor, actually uh, paid him homage and really singled him out as this descendant of the sage himself. Mm. And so, so in that case, um, when so he was actually put into a minor kind of administrative position because of this imperial uh, honor or the imperial notice. And then he went ahead and wrote this play <laughs> um, where he contemplated uh, the fall of the Ming. And so um, he could, even in this play, he couldn't say anything about his own time as um, bad, right? So he had to put it as like uh, order um, restored um, and everything looking up. But, but when we are dealing with the actual losses and when we are um, in the time when things seem to have completely healed, um, but when the ruler is actually one who act- actively try to purge our remembrance of the past, in that kind of context, how do we still deal 
with these um, actually still very immediate and haunting past. And so that's right. the post memory the the post generation uh, has to tackle with. Mm. Yeah, and you kind of include some reflections on uh, other writers or, or, or actually these appear uh, in other places in the book too, people who write things that are somehow derogatory about, uh, well, what is now, I guess, Dongbei, but the, the the Manchu homelands, you know, accusing it of being a, a sort of wild and barbarous place or make comments in their writing about um, about Manchus as distinct from uh, Han or Chinese people and, and, and those kind of, uh, I guess, the consequences that they then have to bear as the authorities crack down on them. Um, and in the epilogue, I guess you provide quite a few sort of little tantalizing reflections on i guess what you've just mentioned there about people writing under particular constraints uh ideological constraints um so i wonder do you feel like your perspective on uh the role of writing and of memory and and you know the erasure or uh i guess exposition of memory in the past did this uh writing experience and the, and the research experience of putting this book together change your kind of sense of uh, the role of, of, of politics and the past uh, in writing and the role of the author uh, in kind of bringing things to light? Oh, yeah, it definitely makes me um, more aware of the fact that we're all each individual, uh, every one of us, we are to a certain degree active bearer of history <laughs> and the very fact that we are like living right now in, in an unprecedented time and basically a kind of historical moment kind of foregrounds that sense of the self, right? Um, and so how you uh, engage, um, how do you make sense of the world um, around you and looking ahead and looking at the past, this is where the past and past, present, and future, I try to put that in a kind of loop. So it's not a linear kind of sense. And so because the way you conceive of the present is always already shaped by the way you conceive of the past. And so the future is also a part of the extension of this conflated sense of the past and present. And so I just think I, I have a more, I, I am more acutely aware of how malleable we all are and how um, our own perspectives keeps changing. And so to a certain degree, um, the engagement with the past is an ongoing uh, way of living. And so that's why to be able to remember becomes a morally and politically uh, significant act itself. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think um, the way we take of the past or the present um, may be different um, in depending on who we think we are uh, and who we identify with, um, mm -hmm. who our education or our central, uh, a, a cultural sense of ourselves, they all play a role in how we process um, our sense of the present and the past. And so to that end, definitely there will be multiple voices um that's definitely to be expected you cannot see in fact um anything that we can all agree on typically point to something that we all forget right mm. and so uh basically to to common agreement points to amnesia itself and so i kind of welcome that contentious um multitude uh, diversity uh take um of uh, the past and the present, but the the very fact that we hear different voices, I think that's important. Meaning that right. 
are kept alive. Mm, and it's really wonderful to have that lesson drawn or that kind of perspective taken from uh, a period which in many regards looks, you know, I guess incredibly different from uh, from the one that we are currently in. Um, but uh, I think as uh, as you've sort of alluded to there, uh, has has parallels with uh, the contemporary moments um, that you know, lots of us are are engaged with, whether whether uh, in China as this book is set in, or or indeed anywhere else. So, um, thank you so much, Xiaoqiao, for uh, appearing today and uh, and giving us all of this uh, yeah fascinating insight. There's an awful lot more in the book that uh, we didn't get to talk about, and I'd encourage, of course, uh, listeners to become readers and and pick up a copy. Um, before we let you go, though, um, can I just ask you what you're working on at the moment? Uh, has lockdown and the like provided you with new and uh, exciting avenues or uh, put the stall on things or Obi, what what are your current projects? Oh, um, I'm, I'm currently working on another play, which is called The Romance of the Western Wing. It's a play that somehow enjoyed unfailing level of popularity um, since its appearance in the 13th century. Of course, the the things that we have hand, at hand, the earliest printed edition of the play came from uh, um, 15th century. But the very fact that it remained popular going through literally like hundreds of reprints uh, and with all sorts of um, commentaries, uh, glasses, uh, pictures, um, and all sorts of like prefatory materials. And so the vitality and also the diversity of social groups that chose to engage with this particular play became itself a kind of unprecedented cultural phenomenon because basically no other play had enjoyed um, this sense of continuity and also this plethora of printed editions. So I'm trying to use this play um, as a focal point to look at um, the diverse uh, social groups that chose to engage with this play and got something out of the play and try to figure out like um, um, how the, the kind of social life this play went through uh, sustained its own canonical status. So mm. it's a way of dealing with um, the different uh, kind of history of reading uh, or the uh, different uh, levels of reading strategies, reading practices, um, and the social significance of those. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And I guess a bit like what we've been talking about today, a great way of weaving together uh, a pretty kind of deep, a sense of deep time and history. Uh, and But actually, yeah, I guess in the life of one uh, work, which yet yeah, sounds great. So I'll look forward to checking that out when the, when it appears. Um, oh, <laughs> in the meantime, Xiao Xiao, uh, thank you again so much for appearing on the show. It was uh, really fantastic to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Listeners, thank you too for listening. Uh, if you've listened this far uh, to New Books in East Asian Studies, it's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back again with you very soon. Goodbye.